0: Good morning again. Welcome. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, If you have a Bible, please open it to there and keep it open. This is a major transition point in the story of Samuel between the story of Saul and the story of David. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, help us to understand your word. Uh, even as it comes to us in the form of story uh, that may be hard for us to relate to, uh, help us to see Jesus in the life of David as our great and mighty and beautiful king. For we ask in His name. Amen. Uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the English journalist G.K. Chesterton was visiting America. Uh, he was in New York City. A bunch of excited New Yorkers took him one night to see Times Square. Uh, he looked around at all of the advertisements, all of the signs and the lights and everything, uh, and after thinking about it for a little while, he said to them, how beautiful it would be for somebody who could not read. We live in a culture that is heavily oriented towards the visual, toward image, rather than substance. Not only, uh, of course, in terms of media, things like movies and ads and Netflix and TikTok and Instagram, but also in terms of the kinds of people who tend to lead us. Celebrities are often famous for being famous, famous for being beautiful, rather than for having done anything particularly virtuous. What matters to me, it seems, most of the time for politicians is that they project confidence and expertise Uh, The debates that they have, the so-called debates that they have, seem to me to really just be a series of shallow talking points, probably run through focus groups, just shouted over each other. Last year, I came across an entire Instagram account dedicated to chronicling the designer sneakers of megachurch pastors. Thousands of dollars for a pair of shoes. Just pictures of these guys in front of their churches wearing them, looking really cool. We live by and for the spectacular. But even if our society is uniquely vacuous or particularly flippant, it's, of course, a universal human problem. Our passage today revolves around seeing, how we should see. It's a passage about um, this contrast between the way that humans see uh, they look to what's outwardly impressive and outwardly attractive. Uh, and then, on the other hand, the way that God sees. God looks deeper than outward splendor to the kind of inward integrity and wholeness of character that's the real source of true and lasting beauty. So you have this contrast in two different kings. You have Saul, who's the king on his way out, and then you have David who's the king on his way in. It's signified by God taking his spirit from Saul, there in the middle of the chapter, and sending his spirit into David. The people of Israel had latched on to Saul. You guys, if you're around, remember this. They latched on to Saul as their king because he looked the part. He was tall. He was more handsome than anybody else, the story told us but we've seen over the last few weeks that his good looks and his sporadic triumphs were not nearly enough for him to be the kind of king that God wanted and the people needed. Saul has failed miserably as king, most fundamentally because of his arrogant and his insecure refusal to listen to God's word. God is now raising up a new king, and you see that starting to happen here in chapter 16. It's going to take a long time for it to actually fully shake out, but it's beginning here. The main takeaway for us today is to learn to admire God's King Jesus through seeing how David points us forward to him. Now, all these titles that Jesus uses of himself in the New Testament, in the Gospels especially, the Son of Man, the Son of God, those kinds of titles, those are all messianic, Davidic-type names and titles. They're ways of connecting Jesus with David as God's chosen king. In verse 1, if you look up there, God comes to the prophet Samuel and says to him, How long are you going to keep grieving over Saul? I've rejected him. Like some of us, sometimes, Samuel is a bit stuck in the past. He's bemoaning how terrible things are right now he's pining away for the glory days of the past but god comes to uh, to him just like god often comes to us and he says samuel it's true what's happening right now and what has happened is really awful it's sad but don't you see what i'm up to don't you see what i'm doing in the world i'm doing something new i'm moving things forward You can't just live in the past feeling sorry for yourselves because things are not what they used to be. He says, Samuel, take your anointing horn filled with oil, dust it off because there's going to be a new king. There's going to be a new Messiah, a better one. God sends him to this guy named Jesse in a town called Bethlehem. He's a man of no particular importance. Bethlehem is a town that's rather obscure, also not really of any particular importance. Uh, God says the reason that he's doing this is because I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Literally, it says, I have seen for myself a king. It's the first instance of this language of sight that appears all over the chapter. It's the same language uh, that gets used in that story about Abraham sacrificing his only son, Isaac. And they're going up the hill, and Isaac starts to wonder what is going on. Uh, He sees the wood and the stuff for starting a fire. And he says, "Uh, Dad... Where is the animal? And Abraham says, The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. It's the same phrase. God providing for himself. Uh, This is, of course, in contrast to Saul, who was a king whom the people had demanded, not for God, but we were told multiple times that this was the king they were demanding for themselves. Saul was the people's choice. And we've seen how badly that worked out for them. David is going to be God's choice. David was God's plan all along. Even in and through all the disappointments, all the misery of Saul's reign, God has still been at work. Maybe there's some of us here this morning uh, that simply need to be reminded of that, that even in the midst of struggle and pain, God is still working out his greater and his lovely plan. Samuel wonders if God has not quite thought it through, though. Verse 2, he says, "Ah, oh, God, that's nice, but it's not going to work. Uh, Saul will kill me when he finds out what I'm doing. He'll kill me for working against him. But amazingly, uh, God gives Samuel a ruse. He says, bring a cow with you, say that you're going to make a sacrifice, uh, but don't say that you're also going to anoint a new king. It's one of these handful of stories in the Bible where you have God's people misleading or deceiving evil rulers and policies. God says, go to Jesse in Bethlehem and I will show you which of his sons I've chosen to be king. God says, I'll protect you. Don't worry about it. I will keep you safe. So Samuel goes and the leaders of the town come out. Uh, They are afraid that this famous prophet Samuel uh, coming to them is going to mean that they're going to get sucked into this dumpster fire of Saul going down the tube. And so they say, do you come peaceably? Are you going to get us wrapped up in all this trouble? And Samuel says, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm coming in peace. All you need to do is consecrate yourselves. We're going to have a worship service. Prepare yourselves for this special activity of entering God's presence. Samuel, overall, has been doing a good job listening to God's commands in spite of his fears. But now in verse 6, you see him struggling to see with God's eyes. He gets to Jesse's house, Uh, he sees the oldest son Eliab there, and he says to himself, Wow, here we go, surely this is the Lord's anointed. I know who it's going to be. But verse 7, God says, don't look on his appearance, don't look on his height, because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's the key verse for the whole story. Uh, The key verse, maybe one of the key verses for the larger story of Samuel, uh, one of the key concepts behind the whole entire Bible. Like the people had done, like we tend to do, Samuel is still seeing Saul-ishly. He's seeing in a Saul-ish kind of way. He's judging according to outward might and impressions. Jesse's older sons all look like they would be fantastic kings, just like Saul had done. But God says, don't judge based on outward appearance like sinful humans tend to do. Instead, learn to see like God does, according to the heart, according to somebody's deepest desires and integrity and goals. Samuel needs to heed the encouragement of his mother. Remember his mother, Hannah, way back at the beginning of this story? Uh, When she found out that she was pregnant with Samuel, she sang this wonderful song that Jesus' mother will later pick up when she finds out that she's pregnant. Hannah sang about how the Lord is a God of knowledge and that not by might shall a man prevail. The world says man prevails by might. God says man does not prevail by might. Two totally different ways of approaching the world. Hannah told us back there at the beginning of the story that God was at work not through the mighty and the successful, but rather through humble and lowly people like her. She told us in all kinds of different little poetic ways that God is at work through the feeble, the hungry, the barren, and the poor, all the kinds of people whom the world overlooks and sidelines and scorns. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. At the end of the day, God is not impressed with our outward strength and success. He is ultimately concerned With our holiness, with our integrity, with hearts that are humbly dedicated to Him rather than to self. Samuel needed to be reminded of that. And so do we. Let's be careful that we are not judging by mere appearances, by the world's standards of what it means to win. Things like comfort, health, wealth, status, a nice happy family. God rather works through the weak. God works through the struggling. God works through the lowly. That's where you really find his power. So Samuel's starting to get it. He swipes through the seven sons, kind of like a dating app, I guess, and he says, no, 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 none of these. The Lord had reminded him of what God's really interested in, and now he knows that none of these are God's chosen. So Samuel says in verse 11, Hmm, are these all your sons? And Jesse says, Well, now that you say that, no. There's the youngest one. uh, Probably means literally the smallest one. Uh, You know, but I didn't even think that you would care to see him. He's just out there watching some sheep. How could you be interested in him? He's just an ordinary kid doing ordinary work tending his father's sheep. He hasn't even been consecrated like everybody else for this worship service. Samuel says, go and get him. I'll wait. David's smallness, David's obscurity are of course exactly the kinds of things that Hannah told us that God is interested in. And kids, it's a good reminder for you that God can and does work through you. Even when David was a boy, God chose him and loved him and worked through him. And so it's a good question for you if you're here and you're a kid. How might God want to work through you? You don't have to be an adult for God to use you. David, of course, points us forward to Jesus, God's ultimate king, David's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, whom David merely foreshadows. Jesus, too, was obscure and overlooked. He was born into poverty. He was raised in the backwoods of Nazareth. I tried to think of an example of what would kind of qualify as, you know, scornful backwoods in Texas, but I don't know it well enough, and I might offend a bunch of you guys. And so just whatever that is in Texas, that's Nazareth. David spent most of his life as one of... A bunch of craftsmen, there was lots of guys doing what he was doing. He didn't have a particularly unusual or unique job. Uh, In a time uh, when many people were claiming to be the Messiah, when people were really excited about God sending his king to get rid of the Romans, uh, when Jesus started saying and doing things that only the Messiah would say and do, uh, there were a lot of people who were shocked by this, people who were scandalized by Jesus doing this. Uh, People horrified that Jesus would claim to speak and act like God's son. Uh, They'd said to him, who do you think you are? You're just another backwoods Galilean. Uh, They said, we trust the experts around here. These people have a lot better credentials than you who are claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, Even if you remember the stories in the Gospels, even Jesus' own family for a while thought he was a lunatic. Um, Everybody back then thought the real action was happening in Jerusalem. Jesus grew up far away from Jerusalem. Uh, And in broader than that, the real, real action was happening even farther away in mighty Rome where the emperor lived. David was little and obscure, just like Jesus was obscure. And yet David, where he, we are told, was lovely and attractive. at Verse 12, you hear that he was ruddy, which is an old English word. It means like reddish, maybe talking about David's hair or his complexion, like maybe one of these kids who runs around and he comes in and he's like super bright red. We're told that he was ruddy, but that he was also handsome, with beautiful eyes. In verse 18, you'll hear again that he's a man of good presence. That means he's handsome. We hear there in verse 18 that he's articulate in the way he speaks and that he was skillful, especially in playing music, and that he was also courageous and mighty in battle. But coming back to verse 12, even beyond his outward beauty, the most important thing about David is that God is for him and with him. And so God tells Samuel, this is my king, anoint him. Samuel does it uh, with this act of anointing oil, which is smearing some olive oil on the head. It's a picture uh, that God has chosen somebody for a special mission. Uh, In this case, the mission of ruling over and defending God's people as king. And then you read that the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David. Literally, it says the spirit forced entry into David from that day forward. God's Spirit is with David in a special and a unique way. He's a kid, but God's Spirit is with him to work mightily through him. Like we said a couple weeks ago, talking about Saul and the Spirit, this is not really talking about the Spirit's work of what we call regeneration. Like This isn't David getting saved or coming to know God as his Savior. Uh, This is talking instead about the Spirit's work of equipping and gifting David To do God's work. It's the same kind of thing that happens at Pentecost. God's Spirit had done this sporadically for the judge Samson. Uh, The Spirit came and went for him a few times. Uh, And it also worked this way for Saul. The Spirit came and went for him. And when the Spirit was with him, he was doing great things for God. And then the Spirit would leave him to himself. But the very next verse tells us that things are um, even worse than that now for Saul. We hear that the Spirit of the Lord departs from him, period. But David's going to have the Spirit's mighty gifting for his entire life, for his entire ministry as king. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit in a much greater way, in a much fuller way than David ever was. Uh, As John the Baptist baptized him with water in the River Jordan, baptism is a kind of watery picture of being anointed. That's part of why we splash water on people's heads or pour water on their heads. Um, When John the Baptist baptized Jesus... He saw the Holy Spirit descend out of heaven upon him. And then he heard God the Father pronounce his blessing upon Jesus as his chosen Messiah. He said, this is my beloved son. It's the same kind of um, ceremony in a way that's going on here with Samuel and David. It's an anointing of sorts. It's God saying, this is my king. The book of Acts says that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit. Now John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John... That God tells him, uh, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has the Spirit beyond measure. And so he gives the life and the power of God's Spirit without measure. The Spirit descended upon him and God tells John the Baptist the Spirit will remain upon him. In the same kind of way that David receives the Spirit for his entire life. All of this fulfills uh, the promise of the prophet Isaiah, who looked forward to God's final chosen king. Listen to these verses. This is from Isaiah chapter 11, uh, telling us ahead of time about what it means that Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, later on, Isaiah will use this language of the spirit to talk about uh, the Messiah freeing people from oppression and from bondage and from slavery. Jesus reads that when he goes to church one day, when he goes to synagogue, and he says, oh, this is about me. David's beauty and David's might and David's skill, all of it is pointing us forward to the beauty and the might and the skill of Jesus. He's the lowly one, anointed with God's mighty spirit in a special way beyond all other people. That's why when you read the Gospels, people are constantly blown away by the wisdom and the might of Jesus. We heard that a little bit in our reading earlier. As Jesus speaks God's word, as he conquers demons, as he heals the sick, people are always saying, what is this? No one ever talks like this. No one does anything like this. Luke chapter 4, we read it earlier, says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Luke goes on, verse 36, They were all amazed and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The gospel of Mark chapter 7 says, They were astonished beyond measure, saying he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All these times, constantly. People, there's a lot of people who don't like Jesus, who are offended by him. By the end of his life, everyone will abandon him. But you also see this theme throughout his whole ministry of people just being amazed by him, marveling at what he's saying and what he's doing. There's a place uh, where the Puritan John Owen uh, is reflecting on the meaning of Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon is a strange book in the Old Testament at one level. Of course, it's about marriage and sex. At another level, the church has generally understood it to be talking about God's relationship with his people, a kind of a marital kind of relationship, and specifically the relationship between Jesus and the church. Uh, That's the angle that John Owen is taking on it. Uh, In chapter 5 of Song of Solomon, uh, the bride is marveling at the beauty of the groom, and she says things like this, "...his cheeks are like a bed of spices." Uh, His cheeks are like sweet flowers. He's altogether lovely, and on and on and on. All this imagery about how wonderful he is. Uh, Owen, John Owen, riffs on this image of the garden bed, a garden where you're growing lots of different spices to use in the kitchen, Uh, everything laid out orderly for the taking, for everything that you need. He says this image points us to the many graces and the gifts of Jesus. He says all of it is ready and suited to our various needs, at various times. And this is what he says. This is a quotation. He says, There is light in Him, and life in Him, and power in Him, and all comfort in Him. A constellation of graces, shining with glory and beauty. By faith and prayer, we gather these things in this bed of spices. None that come to Him, go away unrefreshed. None that come to Him, go away unrefreshed. David's beauty and skill and might point us forward to Jesus. David had God's Spirit upon him his entire life. Jesus had God's Spirit beyond measure more than anybody who's ever lived. That's the first part of the chapter. God's Spirit coming upon God's King. Now, and more briefly, the second part, God's Spirit leaving the people's King. God's choice of David comes right on the heels that we heard about last week the heels of his rejection of Saul with the departure of God's spirit you also hear in verse 14 very ominously that God has sent a harmful spirit upon Saul to torment him to terrify him it may or may not mean an actual demonic being coming to torment Saul Uh, but whether or not there's a demon, an actual demon behind it, which there might be, um, the main thing in view here seems to be some kind of mental illness. Something uh, like paranoia, maybe bipolar disorder, that periodically overwhelms Saul with anxiety and terror. The verses assume that God is ultimately in charge of all things, things even like disability, mental illness, demonic activity, even if we're really careful to remember that God is not the direct cause or the direct author of these kinds of things. Uh, That's why it says that the harmful spirit, ultimately speaking, is from the Lord. He's facing God's judgment for his persistent rejection of God's blessings and God's grace, his persistent refusal to accept that God's word really is good. We saw over and over, Saul thought he knew better than God. Saul's servants see what's going on with their master and they propose finding somebody who can play music for him when he's having one of these episodes to help soothe him. Um, Many of us know how powerful music can be to comfort us in the midst of darkness. Uh, I'm so grateful for those of you who are gifted in playing music, who are gifted in singing all the ways that it blesses uh, the world, but also this church. Um, This is part of the reason why singing is so important to church, uh, why we're commanded to sing. Uh, Not just to read the words, though the words are nice, uh, they work well oftentimes as a poem, um, and certainly not just to convert them into theological propositions. And Think about the difference uh, between singing, this is my father's world, why should my heart be sad, singing it, Thinking about the difference with that and just reciting it like I just did. And then even more, you know, the difference of just saying, God is sovereign. Don't be sad. There's a big difference. God uses music to comfort us and to heal us. In verse 18, you see that the servants know about this guy named David. They know about his skill and his might. And more importantly, they know that the Lord is with him. So he enters into Saul's service to care for him. Eventually, he'll aid him in battle. He becomes his armor-bearer. And so Saul comes to love him for the benefits that David brings him. Whenever Saul falls into this pit of darkness, Saul plays some kind of harp, some kind of guitar, so that, verse 23, Saul would be refreshed, he would be well, and the harmful spirit would depart from him. It's all very ironic. The coming king is aiding and comforting the fading king. The fading king doesn't even know yet who David is. He doesn't know about David's anointing. That was a private matter. Saul finds a measure of relief from his torment through the very man who will one day supplant him. Very soon we'll see Saul consumed with violent and jealous rage toward David. But for now he loves him and he appreciates him at some level. I suppose it's something like how Jesus, through his spirit, right now, is bringing a great deal of blessing and relief to this entire world, even though much of the world doesn't really care for him. I've been reading a book lately about all the ways that Christianity has transformed the modern world, the ways that Christianity has led to things that lots of modern people just take for granted, like the end of slavery, the rights of women, concern for the poor, the rise of science and universities. All these things, in many ways, can be traced back to Christianity and so like Saul with David, uh, our world with all of its own unclean spirits, all of its own torment is constantly being helped and protected by the skillful and the mighty rule of Jesus. He's the king over all things, even if you are currently unwilling if you are currently willing to see it or to admit it. But how much more benefit can and do we receive from King Jesus? When we do acknowledge his skill, when we do see his beauty, when we do come to him in faith, not based on mere appearances, when we come to him and we find in him anything that we need, like that Puritan John Owen said all the light we need, all the life we need, all the power we need, all the comfort we need. How much more benefit do we have from Jesus today than Saul ever had from David? When we can say with those people, about Jesus, that He's done all things well. Let's trust in Him, not merely in outward power or success of our own, not merely in outward strength that we might demand from God. God's King has come, not only to rule us and defend us, but also to console us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the rule of Jesus. It's not a bare, hard, rule of mere sovereignty, control. But also, Jesus' rule is a rule of comfort and peace and protection. Help us to come to him wherever we are at this morning. Help us to come to him to find the life and the light and the comfort and the strength that only he can give us. Help us to see his beauty in spite of how he appears to the world and often how He appears to us. Help us, we pray in His name. Amen.